Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is episode 163, and we are interviewing Paul Ingram. This was a super fun conversation. Uh, Paul is somebody that Laval has been following on Twitter, uh, now X, uh, for some time at PainSci. So Pain uh, S-C-I is his handle, and then has introduced me to uh, the PainScience.com website that Paul uh, runs, which uh, contains just some incredible science writing regarding pain, which is a really fascinating subject, particularly to endurance athletes. I've got a couple of nagging injuries myself from ultra endurance stuff, uh, and I've been on a deep dive uh, in Paul's website. So he's also very, very good at this. He does a terrific job of being interviewed and uh, making things very relatable for people. We really appreciate his time. We'd also like to have a follow-up interview with Paul and we'd love for you guys to participate in that. So if you're a listener and you have questions, please email us at adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com and we can put together um, perhaps another episode where we are answering some questions. I certainly learned a lot, so thank you again to Paul for coming on the show. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Doer. They're the world's most comfortable pants. It's D-U-E-R is how that's spelled. Um, Laval also introduced me to Dewar. Uh, this brand is awesome. Some of the most comfortable, uh, well-put-together clothing that I've ever owned. It's a Canadian company, which, of course, we love. They've got a uh, big focus on sustainability, which we also love. Our Canadian listeners can visit them at Dewar.ca. So that's D-U-E-R.ca. American listeners at shopdoer.com. Uh, and if you happen to be in Calgary, they do have a physical storefront that's at 1708 4th Street Southwest. So that's the corner of 17th Avenue and 4th Street. So if you're Calgarian or if you are visiting Calgary, go and visit them in person there. Uh, that is also within a couple blocks radius of a ton of great places to get a great pint of beer or a cup of coffee. So it's a good hang. Go visit them uh, down at the shop at Dewar. Paul, thank you again for visiting us on the on the podcast, and we hope to have you back really soon. Again, people, reach out with comments, questions for Paul or about this episode, adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. So, Paul Ingram, thanks very much for joining the Adventure Audio Podcast. I found you several years ago on um, Twitter uh, because of your pithy but very interesting uh, tweets. I guess now because it's X, you'd be calling them excrements. And um, I've always enjoyed your no-nonsense look at uh, pain treatment. And um, as an athlete, I find it very interesting. And I've sort of followed your um philosophy on treating pain anyways in sort of uh unconsciously uh, or subconsciously well i don't know what the correct term would be but um it turns out i was doing sort of the stuff that you recommended so we're looking forward to digging into um some of the bs treatments we see out there all of us as uh as athletes are exposed to this all the time especially with, with the podcast world and uh we want to uh dig into this stuff so thanks again right. for joining us and you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, you'll have to let me know what my pain treatment philosophy is. I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, I, yeah, I can actually, I can just sort of uh, sum it up real in a very sort sure. of Cole's notes kind of way. I don't know if that's uh, only a Canadian reference, but I like the idea that you um, promote, con I guess, load control with uh, with an injury. And, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. 
yeah so load control and um uh you never recommend other than maybe for the first week or two of an injury to actually completely rest anything always keep moving basically is what you recommend you're into uh manual um treatments uh i guess manual and mechanical treatments of injuries and um uh, you don't promote, I think what we were exposed to in the seventies and eighties and maybe early nineties of, Oh, you've got a back injury. Just stay in bed for two weeks. Um, or you hurt your knee, um, you know, stay off your leg for, for two or three weeks or six weeks, whatever it is. And then you use that six week, uh, metric, which I really, uh, find, uh, informative, uh, informative as well. And I've actually lived that. So maybe I'll just use one of my experiences. Cause I know Paul, just digging through your background that you've experienced, uh, uh, chronic pain, I think I'm going to call it. You can correct me if that's wrong, but no, that's I right. had a, uh, I had a compressed uh, vertebrae in my neck. I'm a cycling com- commuter. I ride back and forth to the Calgary airport from where I live. And one morning I had a sh- sore left, uh, shoulder. So I of course attributed it to the gym, uh, you know, the narrative, you, you build this narrative, this theory of situation, everybody does. And I think men even more so that, oh, okay, I heard it in the gym this morning. And, and at that time I was in management of the airline. So I wasn't actively flying as much, but I was in the office that day. And that whole day was, it was getting worse and worse. And by the time I rode home, I remember it was a Thursday, I had to ride home with just one hand on my, on my handlebars. And, um, then the pain in my neck are in my shoulder disappeared and it turned into, I believe the term was a radiculopathy. And I had insane nerve pain running down my arm. It was Mm -hmm. like I had um, like the outside of my tricep sort of uh, uh, upper bicep had been skinned and then burned with boiling water. Top of my... The, the top of my uh, my my hand near my thumb and then the back of my hand as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that uh, the pain was so intense, this nerve pain that, that my wife took me to emergency after. I, I don't know. I don't know the time frame because I was living in this cloud of pain. And um, they got me in immediately, actually in about three hours for an MRI. And uh, they diagnosed that I had this, uh, I think it was about a four millimeter I guess it would be an extrusion or an intrusion. I guess it would be an intrusion of the disc into the spinal column. Yeah, they would call yeah. it an extrusion. The extrusion, yeah. Extruding from between the vertebrae. Yeah. yeah. So I, it, the pain was intense and immense. And uh, so much so that I would sleep on the landing of the stairs so I wouldn't keep my wife Janet awake. And I would be <laughs> flopping around on the bed moaning like a, like a baby. So a bad one. long story short, long story short, I had a surgery... Uh, consult consultation. There were two surgeons involved. I, a new young surgeon working with an older surgeon. I walked into the room at the um, Foothills Hospital here in uh, Calgary, and uh, I had not been sleeping at all. But for the past week or so, I'd been getting a few hours a night. I didn't even realize it. I walk in, the young surgeons there were awaiting the arrival of the senior surgeon. And he... Um, a young surgeon comes in, he looks at my scan, which is up on the screen, and he goes, wow, that's pretty bad. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to schedule in. It was around this time of year, actually. We're going to schedule you in towards the end of March. We're going to cut a hole through the front of your neck, go back to your um, to your uh, vertebrae. We're going to uh, remove the disc in one vertebrae. Um, 
and then obviously we're gonna we're gonna put titanium plates on it. It's gonna be immovable and 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 I was just I was like what and and I and I said well what about the load on the disc above and below it on the cervical vertebrae above and below it aren't they gonna is not gonna take an increased load and he goes yeah so probably in about ten years we'll have to do those as well. So I was just I was terrified. I texted my wife some expletive deletives and um, then the old surgeon walks in and he looks up at the screen he leans up on the wall and he's I'm behind him and he goes this is pretty bad he said uh, yeah for you know you can measure on the screen with that they've got that electronic measuring digital measure, measuring device and he said are you sleeping at all he turned around and goes are you sleeping at all and I said um, yeah I get no first I said no and I went oh no actually you know what I am I guess I am sleeping a couple hours a night now it's he goes, so is it getting better? I go, well, it, judging by my sleep, I think it is. And he goes, yeah, 70% of these heal on their own. If it's not better in six weeks, uh, come back. We may have to operate. I looked at the young guy, and I, <laughs> he just kind of <laughs> shrugged his shoulders and walked away. But if, if, if the old guy would have been on vacation right now, guys, I'd have fused vertebrae in my neck full of titanium. So yeah. that's my exposure. And that's in Canada with much less profit motive for intervening mm-hmm. surgery than they have in the States. Yeah, that was uh, that was an excessive recommendation on the part of the young doctor. There would yeah. be a justification for early intervention, for early surgery with severe cases, but not immediately. You'd wait, you know, probably three or four weeks. And if it was not particularly getting better, if it was really severe, then you might operate, but only a little, you know, maybe just trim it clip it like a toenail and that you know not not this oh we're gonna take that disc out we're gonna bolt those vertebrae together and then 10 years we'll have to do it again yeah that's crazy talk so yeah conservative these things almost always recover on their own and you give them as little external help as possible you screw around with it as little as possible just let the body do its job, get out of its way as much as you possibly can. So on on the on the since we're on the vertebrae right now, or we're gonna go from my <laughs> neck down. Obviously you have had a you had Let's a see ton. where the whole hour is gonna go here. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we're slowly going down. You've had a ton of um of blog posts or what would you what would we call them articles on back pain. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about back pain and some of the sure. um, sham treatments that you've talked about and the, the treatments that you are, are a proponent of. <laughs> That's a big, a big open-ended question. Lots and lots of material there. And the, the number one problem with back pain treatment therapy um, in the whole world today is an excessive focus on the fragility of the back. Uh, treating it like it is a fragile thing that breaks down easily and struggles to heal. Uh, Literally the opposite is true. It doesn't break easily and it recovers remarkably well. It's a modular gadget we have in our backs. The spine is, uh, is robust in each of its units and all the more so because it's a stack of units, because it's a group of interacting functional units Uh, which means that you can do incredible damage to a single vertebrae and the rest of the spine just takes over and is amazingly good at compensating for it in a a highly functional way. Uh, My wife had a terrible, terrible car accident, giving us a great example of what I mean uh, in 2010. In fact, uh, today, 
and February 2 is the 14th wow. anniversary of her accident. And one of her many fractures was uh, a burst fracture, a massive burst fracture of the 12th thoracic vertebrae. And that's when the, the, the ring of bone around the outside of the vertebrae just pops open, like the rings around a barrel bursting. And uh, that, you would think that that would be an, an utterly disabling injury. Uh, it's incredible how well her spine has adapted to that. And other than a couple little quirks of movement and being prone to some aches and pains, she's amazingly fine to this day and has been ever since that terrible injury. So it's a, the spine is, um, is tough. And so much of what um, therapy for back pain is based on is the assumption of fragility. And that the worst possible thing is for it to be misaligned uh, or degenerating. And mm, no, <laughs> misalignment, degeneration correlate very poorly with uh, pain. Uh, pain in the back is a function of variables, very complex, many very complex variables, most of which we cannot possibly even know about. And the relatively obvious stuff uh, and this this might qualify as you know the single most important thing that I wish everyone in the world knew about back pain. Um, the 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 most obvious things are often uh, not the actual cause of the problem. Uh, so when you scan the spine and you see something that really looks like a problem, there's actually a, a great chance that it's incidental. Um, the kind of disc herniation that you had in the neck. Uh, is a terrific counterexample. Um, sometimes it really does matter. Sometimes it is obvious. Sometimes obvious is obvious. And uh, But when you've got um, a lot of back pain for no clear specific reason, and you do a scan and you see something that looks, oh, that's got to be the cause. That looks bad. There's your problem. Not necessarily. It's mm -hmm. truly incredible how much can look wrong with the spine and not actually be the problem. And it's also impressive, the other side of it, it's amazing how much pain can come from no obvious problem at all or a problem that's very, very hard to see. It is there. It is distinct. A uh, classic example from my own archives is a friend who had a spinal cyst. Not easy to scan. Not obvious took multiple scans and just the right kind of imaging to find it. When it was finally identified, bam, surgical removal, no more problem. That was the end of it. But it was incredibly hard to spot. Uh, so we have an absolute nightmarish plague of excessive imaging and over-interpreted, fearfully over-interpreted imaging of backs in the world today. Uh, if everybody understood that about back pain, that would solve half of our problems with treating back pain. Uh, so there, I've, I've now narrated about 12% of the key points of my back pain book. <laughs> There's plenty more. <laughs> so Paul, on the subject of scans, it sounds like that could be a bit of a double-edged sword, or I guess in this case, a double-edged scalpel, where we can we yeah. can rely too heavily on, on scans uh, for the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, 
pain is mostly a function of invisible biochemistry. Um, most pain is caused by complex biological factors, uh, not obvious mechanical and structural ones, which is not to say that there aren't obvious mechanical and structural problems sometimes, uh, but the majority of the time it's not. And a really, you know, like fun fact about the spine is lots of people have that same uh, intervertebral disc extrusion that you had and no symptoms. And this is what I mean about pain being a function of biochemistry. Um, the same, the, the problem that looks the same on 50 scans, you're going to see a full range of symptoms with that. Some people being completely fine, just like people can be infected with COVID and not have a single symptom, or it can murder them. The, the stuff that you see on the scans is not the whole story. And whether or not it is a clinical problem depends on the invisible stuff and probably psychology too, also invisible, hard to scan. Uh, if someone is terrified of the impact of back pain, then uh, they may be much more likely to experience severe distress and suffering and from from a problem that causes someone else hardly any difficulty at all. And, and that's because pain and suffering are really hard to separate uh, when someone is freaked out by the implications of having pain. Like maybe it means that they're not going to be able to work and, uh, and they're financially strapped and it's really scaring them, the, the consequences. Um, it is impossible from the outside to tell the difference between someone with mild pain and high freakout versus low freakout and high pain. You can't tell because pain in 100% subjective. There is no painometer. There's no pain scanner. So we never know whether someone is, are they in this much pain with a little bit of suffering and psychological distress piled on top of it or vice versa. It's very hard to get a read on. So have you learned over the years as a practitioner, as a, as a, I, I think you're a recovering massage therapist, but have you, <laughs> yes, ha, that's right. <laughs> have you learned number one? So this is, you're opening a real can of worms here. We're talking about, obviously oh, they're all pains. cans of worms. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're so subjective and they're so personal. And uh, yeah. the issue, I still remember when I had my issue is that the pain was so intense, but there was no physical evidence of it. You could not see it. You could, yeah. even though my arm felt like it was on fire, like I said, I'd skinned my bicep and thrown boiling water on it or the outside of my arm. There's no yeah. evidence of it. And you start to question your own yeah. uh, evaluation of this pain. And now, and now, yeah. so one thing you talked about here was uh, uh, two things. I'd like to know your definition of pain. And I, and I think by saying this, that there must be a different definition or a difference between pain and suffering. And then yeah. second... Uh, the biopsychosocial aspect of pain treatment and whether you believe in that or not. There's a big can of worms to open. Good question, yeah. Okay, let's take those one at a time. Um, for the definition of pain, I, it would be madness to do anything except defer to the IASP definition. There is a, a formal official definition and I can't reproduce it from memory. 
Uh, but it's basically, it's an unpleasant experience is the core of it. it by definition, you don't like it. <laughs> right? That's like, the, like hanging out with Pete and I. Right. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling so much of that right now. Oh, the pain. <laughs> um, it, it's, um, and, and it's important that it is self-defined. Only the pain patient can say whether or not they are in pain. No one can say that you're not in pain and no one can say that you are in pain. It's up to you. It's your pain. So that's a very important part of the definition of pain. Um, Biopsychosocial um, refers to the, uh, the fact that uh, health outcomes and health are a factor of biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors. Um, and this idea was originally floated by a doctor, I think it was in the 70s, who basically thought that, you know, medicine was getting um, too abstract, too uppity, uh, too technological. And he thought that the human element needed to be reintroduced and emphasized. Um, so the original spirit of the biopsychosocial model of care was hey, how about we be nice to people and treat them like people with stories that matter to care? Radical concept. Um, and, you know, when you put it like that, how can you object to it? <laughs> it's, it's a pretty basic idea. How about we be nicer and treat people like people? Because all of these things contribute to whatever people are struggling with the biology, the psychology and their place in society. And by the way, the social part is very complicated, but the big part is socioeconomic. Um, whether you have money, whether you're educated has massive complicated effects on your lifetime health. Um, so it's all in there. It's all in the mix. Now, in my field, in the world primarily of rehab and manual therapy of trying to fix people uh, with um, your hands or tools, the world of physical therapy, chiropractic, massage therapy, pain medicine, that world. In that world, there was for a long, long time an overwhelming, actually, I shouldn't say for a lot, there is still, for 50 years, there has been an overwhelmingly dominant problem with overemphasizing the simplistic biological. So take the bio part of biopsychosocial and make it idiotically simple. We have a big problem with that. And specifically, this is what I'm talking about, about relying too much on obvious physical and structural signs. And you've got literally entire professions devoted to hunting and fixing visible or physical or structural abnormalities. And that's a simplistic bio. And that's a huge problem. The simplisticness is the problem, not the bio. What we need is more nuanced and complicated bio, the biochemistry, the messy bio. That's where the real action is. That's where the whole field needs to move is from simplistic bio to better bio 
But now, are you saying, Paul, that you're keeping the the uh, patient doctor or patient practitioner uh, interview involved in that as well? Because, absolutely. For example, you hear about telemedicine where all of a sudden mm-hmm. um, you've got a, a person in front of you on a screen and they're talking about their ailments, but you didn't see them walk into your office. You didn't see how they had difficulty sitting down or standing up or hanging in their coat. So that would have given you a bunch yes. of hints. So yes. is that what you're talking about? Um, that's part of it. Absolutely. Um, instead of rejecting simplistic bio, what we are seeing in the field now is a transition from simplistic bio to simplistic psychosocial, which is blaming all pain on attitude on basically saying that it's in people's head, uh, that old idea, it's all in your head. Um, there's a more sophisticated version of understanding pain as a function of psychosocial factors. Uh, but in practice, most of the time, uh, we're seeing a transition from bad a bad interpretation of the bio to a bad interpretation of the psychosocial. And uh, instead of what both of them need, we need a more subtle and nuanced understanding of the biology, and we need a more subtle and nuanced understanding of the psychology and the social factors as well. Uh, there are, by the way, major deficiencies in the field. It's really bad, actually. Most people wildly underestimate how pseudoscientific and primitive the field of rehab and injury and pain medicine is. It's We're still in the Wild West. It's still early days for this part of medicine. And so the, the overwhelming majority of my job is fighting uh, misinformation and shitty old ideas that we've been saddled with for decades. Pete, you look like you're chopping at the bit there. That was all very interesting and well put. Um, <laughs> how, how, um, when, like as an endurance athlete, like for, especially for somebody like Laval, who could be yeah, really, really out there in, in really remote areas and stuff, there's sort of two different types of pain that, endurance athletes deal with right and so there's an injury which is a different thing but sometimes you're just doing something for so long and so repetitively that you start to get all kinds of pain none of it which is going to necessarily shut you down but the endeavor starts to really become an exercise of keeping calories up and pain management and those are kind of the two things and and then you can sort of Mm -hmm. keep doing it for as long as you can keep doing those two things as long as you can process calories and manage that pain. And yeah. there's some natural ebb and flow that goes in and out of that. How much study is there surrounding how people can kind of compartmentalize their minds and deal with that that sort of repetitive pain, that that mm-hmm. endurance pain rather than like an injury injury, which is also, I mean, just really interesting what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's crazy to... between them. Okay. Great matter yeah, between them. Sometimes it's hard to tell if you're dealing with an injury injury. Uh, it, this would be a fantastic question for Alex Hutchinson. Uh, uh, you should uh, you should swap him in here <laughs> to answer that one. That's his area of expertise. <laughs> I think we, I think we should, did. I think he we did should, when he was on. We, we definitely talked about that, that yeah. scope of, of question for sure because there is this whole 
it's like there's this whole other place that you can unlock once you're able to sort of deal with that stuff. And it keeps a lot of people away from it, right? They think that you should yeah. do something up until it becomes uncomfortable. But that yeah. uncomfortable really is pain. It can be psychological, emotional, and, and physical or some it's, it's like, It can be it's a, a combo blend, of the yeah. three. Yeah, yeah, yeah oftentimes. Yeah. And, and how do you know the difference? And it, it's, it's very clear that uh, the limits of endurance are complicated and unclear. We don't know what we keep discovering that people can go further and harder than ever before. And it, 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 it almost at times seems like it's unlimited. Like we're just never going to stop uh, pushing the boundaries back. Uh, probably there are limits, <laughs> but clearly a whole bunch of the discomfort and suffering um, is optional or can be endured. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, from free diving. Um, the, uh, the discovery that it's normal and fine to have your diaphragm go into spasms for a, while, a little while. You can tolerate that. <laughs> this is for many, many years. This is the phenomenon that shut people down with free diving. They're like, Oh, my diaphragm is spasming. I think I'm dying. I think I'll go up to the surface now. And, you know, right. at some point people started to understand that, no, nope, you can, it's fine. No, no harm will come to you. Not from that. There may be other problems with yeah. extreme breath holding, and um, and it's. I think it's a great way of illustrating the difference. You know how how do you discover that it's okay for your diaphragm to spasm, but this other thing, this other symptom, that's not good. <laughs> right? You don't want to push through that boundary, or you're dead. And um, how do you know? And I think in the case of uh, free diving in that specific example is trial and error, right? Like people just kept pushing the envelope and discovered the somewhat unsafe way what they could and couldn't get away with. And, uh, and I think it's the same with a whole bunch of pain problems that emerge as you run. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a perpetually unanswered question about, uh, about injuries. How meaningful are niggles? Um, I think do you, you wrote a blog post about that. I did once upon a time, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's and it, it, unfortunately, I don't think that there's a clear answer. Certain kinds of niggles are definitely stronger warning signs than others, but how do you tell the difference? And uh, I, I think one simple guideline is that it, if the niggle is a minor version of one of the classic overuse injuries, that's probably one you need to pay attention to because chances are it will just keep evolving straight into a worse version of that. And we know Tendon. what's the most serious form? Plantar fasciitis, yeah. like things like that for runners. Shin yes. Yeah. Shin splints. Yeah. What's the more serious form of niggle? What's the word for the most uh, for the more serious technical term for niggle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, red flag. How about that? <laughs> and and we know that stress fractures like this. This is a great one for endurance athletes to know about. My my first my, my first rant of the podcast talking about biopsychosocial stuff. Uh, possibly not uh, of super duper high interest to endurance athletes. But this much more on point, um, stress fractures and bone fatigue injuries are really underestimated. Uh, every endurance athlete knows about tendonitis and plantar fasciitis and IT band syndrome and you know all the 
all the classic usual suspects, most of them in the lower body. Um, but bone stress fractures or bo bone fatigue injuries and stress fractures are um, pretty badly underestimated, underdiagnosed, quite sneaky. Um, they can evolve for weeks and weeks and weeks and tough uh, endurance athletes can pretty easily endure the pain of an incipient stress fracture for a long time before it suddenly gets a whole hell of a lot worse. And they really shouldn't, right? Like it's a great example of, yeah, there are things you can push the limits of performance by learning to live with and ignore all kinds of pain. But if you could know that that pain, that is a bone fatigue injury getting started, should send you screaming to your couch. That, do not mess with those. Do not fuck with bone fatigue injuries. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, compartment syndrome. Do you know compartment syndrome? That's another one that is downright, like in this case, not Terrifying. just not just dangerous, life-threatening. If you develop a serious compartment syndrome, which is most likely that's like shin splints can be a bunch of different things. It's a very general term, but one of the things it can be is a, is a bone uh, injury and you don't want that. And another one of the things it can be is compartment syndrome, which is when the, uh, the tube... Uh, that the tibialis anterior muscle is in uh, starts to swell and it's a really tough tube and the swelling can't go anywhere and it starts to cut off circulation to the compartment which causes a, a type of pain called claudication pain the pain of reduced circulation that will murder you that if that escalates uncontrolled and it tends to escalate very rapidly um that is a very serious injury that can result, lead to amputation of the leg or even death from infection. Uh, cut off circulation. Before you know it, that muscle compartment is rotting and that's how it can kill people. So it's a very serious uh, injury that comes from the same kind of niggle that could be, oh yeah, it's just a, you know, it's a little bit of medial tibial uh, stress syndrome, which is more of a tendonitis. How the, how does the endurance athlete tell the difference? How do you know? Um, I'm yeah. I'm how do you up know? a case of you don't <laughs> like that's because it's kind of a punchline. <laughs> Peter, Peter, have you heard of this this compartment syndrome before? So, no, so no. I'd heard of it before, and the in the most the, the the most famous case that I know of is the 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 guy the CNN journalist who did the he was the aviation and space uh, journalist and because I'm in aviation I'd always watch him whenever he was on he was in the mm -hmm. Philippines he was on an airplane and he opened the overhead bin and his some of his 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 uh, camera equipment and recording equipment were in those uh, those uh, aluminum uh, tough boxes and one bruised his uh, left or right arm and his forearm. And I think his arm was amputated in Manila within under 12 hours. They had to take his arm off because it was killing him from a yeah. bruise. Yeah. What do you do if you're in the middle of nowhere? You get lose your, an arm. Your, oh. Yeah. Or or your wow. life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's rare. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. This isn't a Thank common God. thing. But but yeah, the, the two places in the body where this happens is the, the forearm and the shin. Same anatomy, actually. Uh, it's just the, the the same kind of structure in both uh, limbs, uh, and in practice, there is no way to know to distinguish the early signs of a minor injury developing versus a major one. 
there's in the early stages, there's not really a practical way to tell the difference unless you're quite knowledgeable about the details of, you know, if you've got your little checklist for bone stress injuries versus uh, medial tibial stress syndrome versus compartment syndrome, you're just not going to know. And so in practice, for the vast majority of athletes, the only way that we judge that is pain severity. If it's relentless and progressive would be the, the technical language. If it doesn't wax and wane, if it just gets worse and worse and worse, um, extremely loud pain is almost always a bad sign. It's fascinating that it isn't always a bad sign. And there are weird exceptions like, uh, like the diaphragm spasming. There are some things that hurt like um, a son of a bitch and they're okay. It's not that big a deal, but it's hard to tell the difference. And generally speaking, if you get relentless, progressive and severe pain, yeah, yeah, you should, you should stop. And there's no way to tell at the niggle stage. Um, but there are certain clues, you know, like the, um, if your leg is going numb, for instance, as well as hurting like hell, bad sign. <laughs> So there are clues, but it's very hard in general to know for sure what what are the warning signs to take more seriously, and that's just part of the part of the risk of being an extreme endurance athlete is uh, you're you know you're never going to know about some of these things, and sometimes they're going to get you. When I was looking through your blog, uh, there's again people need to visit it. There's so, there's so much good, so many interesting articles on PainScience.com. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, it, and it is a rabbit hole for sure. And yeah, something, that caught, something that caught my, yeah, and there was lots of stuff in there. But my instinct and mm -hmm. the 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 uh, science and data on all this stuff that's been interesting to me over the decades of being an endurance athlete, a lot of it, uh, nothing jumped off the page to me that I was like, huh, really? Um, some of the things that you sort of uh, debunk, for lack of a better term, I wasn't surprised mm -hmm. to hear. But one, Paul, that I got to tell you, kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. <laughs> Oh, your, I, I, opinion on... If I haven't hurt your feelings at some point, I'm doing something wrong. It's, yeah. it's inevitable. Was uh, was your article on stretching not actually being oh, beneficial? Oh, that's I was, on my I was, list. I was aghast yeah. because I was like, no, that yeah. can't be true. I stretch every day. And in my yeah. mind, it has it. I, I had believed until I read that article that it had had a lot to do with my um, good luck with uh, injury prevention, too. Because I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I'm not putting myself in necessarily some of the high risk situations that Laval might do, uh, but I push pretty hard and I train all of the time year round, um, still run. I'm in my mid forties and not would, you know, have been generally really good. And I, I credited the stretching to a lot of that stuff. And now I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. I almost didn't even want to bring it up. <laughs> it's like bring I have it to, up. I have to, oh, how do I do talk it. to this guy about stretching? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I, and it feels good. To, to your point yes. in the article, that it feels good. How could this not be beneficial? Yeah, and by the way, you are allowed to love stretching, uh, regardless of what medical and fitness benefits it does or does not have. Um, I also love stretching, and I stretch regularly because it feels good, and that's worth something that's inherently valuable, independently of the health and fitness and rehab claims. Uh, but it is independent of those claims. There's there's two sides to stretching. There's stretching the the ritual, the habit, um, the thing that feels good that people like to do, uh, regardless of the reasons that they choose to do it. And then and then there's the reasons. Then there's its reputation and the classic claims that have been made about it. Um, let me just uh, establish my my cred a little bit uh, before 
saying anything more. Uh, this is one of my core topics um, in the world of fitness and rehab and, and pain medicine. There's a there's a handful of topics that I'm particularly into and have been for a long, long time, and this is one of them. And uh, the stretching, uh, I have a, a, a huge doorstopper of an article about stretching uh, that's been published for, oh gosh, I mean, it's it's for sure 20 years now. And, uh, and it has been continuously updated that whole time. I never stop reading the science and citing the science and interpreting the science and updating the article. Uh, so it's really, it's like a short, you know, book. It's like a small, heavily referenced book at this point. And this is a, this is a topic I know a lot about. Uh, reasonable people can disagree, um, but it'd be really, it'll be very challenging to disagree with me about this. Because um, man, do I have the citations. So the, the issue with stretching is that it is, it is not a pillar of fitness. It does not deserve that reputation. It is nowhere near as important as strength and aerobic fitness. Uh, it is often treated like it is one equal leg of the stool that supports all of our fitness. Um, and it just doesn't deserve it because all of the key claims about what stretching supposedly does for us, such as the, the big one would be preventing injury, um, are wrong. It doesn't prevent injury. Uh, flexibility can be increased by stretching. That's one claim that is absolutely correct. If you are inflexible and you work hard at stretching, you will get more flexible. Um, however, it won't make you less prone to injury. And in fact, in many contexts, it will make you more prone to injury that increasing flexibility and stretching hard is an inherent uh, is inherently risky in itself that intense stretching has hurt people many times and flexibility is in fact not a desirable um, characteristic for many athletes uh, a lot of dance troops around the world for instance have started to ditch stretching because they now understand that what you really need Far more than you need range of motion is you need strength, power, and control and coordination within whatever range of motion you have. Oh, and by the way, if you get stronger, you also will get more flexible, assuming you're using the full range of motion in your strengthening. So your typical muscle-bound right. gym pro, obviously, that's not getting more flexible by getting more strong. But people like dancers or gymnasts, who strengthen at the same time that they're using their full range of motion, the strengthening exercises that they do will make them just as flexible as stretching, but way more functionally flexible. So really, you want to stretch, quote unquote, stretch by strength training through a full range of motion. And so there, are, there is a long list of problems with conventional wisdom about stretching. And, but that's the big one, is that flexibility is not clearly valuable and being flexible and stretching uh, does not prevent injuries. There might be, here and there, there might be little exceptions. There might be very specific activities or sports where flexibility is more beneficial or prevents a little bit of injury, but nowhere close 
to the amount of injury prevention that people assume. So for instance, particularly runners do not need to stretch to prevent uh, injury or enhance performance. And in fact, we even have, this is, it happens again and again throughout the science of stretching. Not only does it not work, it may actually even be a problem. Uh, I don't think it's a big problem. What I've seen in the research, I don't see a big problem, but it is the opposite of enhancing performance. If anything, you see a little hit, you see a reduction in performance uh, for some kinds of running with some kinds of stretching. Uh, so not not in a big bad way, but literally the opposite of what people are hoping that they're doing, uh, which is actually a surprisingly common theme throughout the world of conventional wisdom about rehab and performance optimization and health optimization. It is astonishing how many things people do that they think they believe passionately are helping and it's either not helping at all or actually doing the opposite, actually causing trouble. Uh, so, yep, that's uh, that's the quick download on stretching. Do you, uh, do you want to slap me? <laughs> I mean, I feel like somebody just told me that uh, scientifically that the White Album actually isn't a great album. And I'm like, <laughs> this is something I've known to be true my entire life. I thought life. you were a Swifty. Can't be right. So it's crazy. Um, I mean, yeah, it, and you, you cannot take the pleasure of stretching away from people. And that's right. You can't, you can't scientifically prove that the white album is a bad album because it's aesthetic and subjective. And so is the pleasure of stretching. You can't take that away from people. And I don't even try. Um, and, and I do it myself. So uh, it's just a matter of separating those and saying, yeah, okay. Um, these are different things. The health are right. Rings, put the right value on it. You, you enjoy right. it, but it's yeah. not going to. Yeah. I, I guess yeah. the only thing I, I think where it comes from Think about uh, watching a soccer game or European football game. Every single player is doing all these quadriceps stretches and yep. hamstring stretches. And then for us as Canadians, what's yeah. a goalie doing before the game starts while everybody's warming up? He is going yeah. through these contortions. He looks like he's you know, Cirque du Soleil on the ice. Getting yeah. That is a, an example of somebody who does need that flexibility for what he's doing. Is that, is that correct, Paul, in, in your assessment? <laughs> I'm going to push back a little on that. Um, one of the most common rebuttals to what I have to say about stretching is that, well, obviously there are certain kinds of athletes who need more flexibility. And I'm not going to deny that that's true in some extremes, but I think it's a lot less true than we think. My favorite go-to example is that one of the most skillful martial artists I've ever worked with, and I did martial arts for many years, um, was an Aikido practitioner who was about as flexible as a two-by-four. Um, and that man was a monster, and I would challenge any good martial artist anywhere to deal with him. And he definitely didn't benefit from flexibility. My point is that flexibility is reflexively worshipped all out of, right. out of all proportion to what it actually does for people. And again, with the goalie, just like with the dancer, it's more about strength and function and control within your range of motion. You're going to get way more value from that than simply being able to go further. 
And in fact, going further just because you yarded on your hamstrings at crap load uh, may even, if you don't injure yourself directly with overzealous stretching, which really does happen, um, even if you don't injure yourself directly through the stretching, you may still find that, in fact, that that greater range that wasn't earned with strengthening at the same time may actually be a problem and make you more prone to injury, not less. Um, so the value of flexibility, even to the the flexibility athletes, the athletes that we think, like I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had a martial artist come at me um, uh, virtually <laughs> and say, well, obviously, I mean, you, I, I know that martial artists need to be flexible and they list off examples. Like, well, no, I still challenge that. And I challenge it as a former martial artist who's seen very, very high function from exceptional martial artists who weren't particularly flexible and didn't have a stretching habit. And I, it, it, it's a, it's a, a real rabbit hole. We could go around in circles for a long time, but the bottom line is after all the work that I've done on this topic, I have definitely come to believe that even those athletes that were used to, Oh, well, that course a gymnast needs to be super flexible. Yes. And no less than you think. Uh, just like with the martial artists, there are, fantastic gymnasts who are less flexible than others the the one the, the the example i like to concede is exhibitionist flexibility contortionists now there's a sport where you do need flexibility because it's are you literally the point so like like pretzel. like a hockey goalie right now he, is he preventing injury from being able to do splits that fast no but mm -hmm. will he stop a goal from occurring yes right so a different mm -hmm. different thing so, yeah but is there is there any correlation between specific groups of the body and injury and flexibility like for example if somebody has tight hamstring hamstrings is there mm -hmm. are they more prone or, or are they actually less prone to pulling the hamstring in in running sports define tight hamstrings though yeah i mean like yeah. if you couldn't if you yeah. couldn't put your hands flat on the floor Stand, right. yeah, just know, a simple like extensibility, in, in, inflexible, test. inflexible. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, and the the research has shown very clearly that the people who are more flexible don't get less or more injuries in most sports. That it basically just isn't that important a factor. Again, okay. what is important, and this is a theme now in this conversation as well as all my writing, uh, what matters tends to be invisible and. Uh, not as simple. You can see how flexible people are. You can get, you can ask them to touch their toes. That's a nice, obvious, visible sign. But again and again, the obvious visible stuff is that's the stuff that we've gotten obsessed with because it's uh, looking where the light is. Um, but it's generally not what actually matters. What matters is much more complicated motor control, strength, uh, uh, control, and coordination. Um, you can compensate for a lot of inflexibility and let's just say for the sake of argument imagine the flexibility really did matter to a certain kind of performance and there are surely examples like a goalie doing splits to stop a goal and do the mm, i lost my train of thought <laughs> you were just mentioning that there are so stretching could be advantageous for where an athlete does need that super flexibility like you said right so let's say that they're, yeah. Okay. So imagine an athlete that is, that really does need flexibility. And, uh, and now, but, but they're not, they don't have the flexibility. 
how much can they compensate for that lack of flexibility with skill, coordination, strength, control? They can compensate a lot, a lot, a lot. I'm not saying that the flexibility doesn't matter at all. It's just that it is very clearly not the only thing in the equation. Of course, every athlete wants to optimize everything that they possibly can. Um, but uh, that flexibility is probably a smaller part of the equation than most people imagine. Um, and to just keep hammering on this, you know, the invisible, complex, subtle biology matters the most. Uh, connective tissue and its properties are very strongly a function of biology, pathology, and genetics. Um, there are many, many genes that regulate the function and performance characteristics of connective tissue. And, uh, and there are a lot of subtle pathologies in that. Lots of uh, connective tissue disorders that are never diagnosed and just make minor changes in how, people, how people's connective tissue adapts to stimulus, for instance. Um, a more obvious example is, very few people know this, but uh, there are amazing variations in how we respond to simple strength training. And so for 100% genetic reasons, one person will go to the gym and do an exercise and get immense benefit from it, and the next person will not get any benefit at all. There are people who are non-responders to strength training. That's a thing. And if that's a thing, you can be sure that it's a thing with stretching, too. There are non-responders to stretching. There are subtle genetic reasons why some people are never going to be flexible, no matter how much they stretch. And that is really important, too, right? You don't want this dogmatic uh, stretching good, stretching prevent injury, flexibility potent, must do. You don't want that dogmatic attitude when the reality, the biological reality, is that there's immense variation in how people's connective tissue works and behaves. And there's a whole subset of the population, something like 20% with connective tissue disorders, many of which are actually a problem if you start trying to stretch them too much. And so there's, yeah, I think, I think I probably hammered on this idea enough. The biology matters. Biology matters a lot. Yeah, super interesting. That's one thing that, yeah, you've done a ton of writing on that, and I find that really interesting. And and, and I like the way you dispel these tropes and these bromides that, that we all just take for, for gospel when we're out there. Just like if we if we turn on the TV now, you'll see people stretching before a soccer game or yeah. before a hockey game. And I, I think what I'm hearing, and I've heard this several times, is how important resistance training is and strength training is overall to mm -hmm. be uh, – to our to our bodies more so mm -hmm. than some of this some of this other stuff yeah i mean if i had to if i had to prioritize strength versus stretching and uh, i mean it's 10 out of 10 versus one out of 10 it's wow. uh i mean i i there's no contest resistance training is fantastic although there's issues there too uh, you can go wrong getting strong to contradict the the phrase um it, there are problems with strength training too like for instance for people with genetic differences. Uh, but overall, strength training, way, way more valuable, way better investment of time. Uh, stretching, even if it worked, would be um, disturbingly inefficient. Yeah. Hey, there you <laughs> go. You got more time in your life now. The good news is that you guess that you've got, you're making room for stuff that does matter. That's huge. It's huge to the people that listen to this podcast. It is, they're, absolutely. They're, yeah. Busy yeah. professionals who, uh, mm -hmm. you know, probably 
I'm guesstimating that 90% of our listeners are recreational athletes. They're trying to squeeze it all in. They're looking for mm -hmm. value in caloric burn and lifestyle and longevity. And so that's, yeah. it's pretty important. It's, um, the stretching it's, it's, is, is not the, the McCartney or Lennon of the white album. <laughs> not at all. Right. <laughs> it's always, it's always been a fun irony to me that people are so into, um, health and fitness optimization and yet will waste vast amounts of time on interventions of very dubious value. Um, if you are keen on optimizing your health and fitness, then you really should care about the stuff that isn't actually a good use of your time. You should, uh, you should be um, celebrating the opportunity to drop anything that's of lower value and replace it with something that is of higher value. That's a great, great silver lining to the bad news. So can I toss a uh, a grenade um, shaped like a can of worms into this conversation right now? Sure. I want to see where this goes. More about I, the stretching? Well, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm anticipating this. Now, I, I always hear people singing the praises of chiropractic. Oh, and, God. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I That just, is a bigger I, grenade, yeah. Yeah, and I just like to know, I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard, anecdotal claims from from people that are close to me that it has saved their lives saved their marriage made their kids grades better etc cetera, etc cetera. and and uh, there i've just served it up what what are your thoughts on, on okay well topic? let's let's get a couple of things out of the way right away uh, first of all there are good responsible ethical progressive chiropractors Whatever I say after this, it sounds like I'm bashing the chiropractic profession, which I get accused of all the time. Uh, not only do those good chiropractors exist, I know them personally. Um, they are out there. Uh, so the problem, it's never, never been about the entire profession being um, rotten apples. The problem is that there is a high proportion of rotten apples in the profession, and there are a lot of there are a lot of issues. Undeniably, chiropractic is burdened with um, a great many controversies. Regardless of what you think about those controversies, there's no denying that there's there are a lot of um, intense, century-long debates about the profession. And some of them aren't even about um, what they do to try to help people. Um, they're not about their specific treatment methods, but about their business practices. For instance, marketing to, you know, marketing their services to parents for uh, spinal manipulation of infants is a major example of that. Uh, the other thing we should get out of the way right away is that testimonials are, in fact, meaningless. Um, it doesn't mean we should ignore them entirely. People's stories matter and we should listen to them and we should be inspired to do research by them. But uh, you, you got to remember that human beings can and will swear by things that are literally killing them and have done so throughout history. There are countless examples in the history of medicine of people literally convinced that they're being cured while they're being seriously harmed. And one of the great classic examples in medical history is uh, the early history of lobotomy. Most people don't know this, but when lobotomy started, um, it was performed by a doctor who became extremely popular, who 
did it as a treatment for people who wanted to calm down. It was used as an anxiolytic. It was used like an antidepressant medication. And thousands and thousands of people voluntarily got lobotomized, which is just mind-boggling. <laughs> and there are many, many and this, other And this is examples. not like 200 years ago. This is like this is, this 60, is 70 years 70. ago, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a, I maintain a list of this. I've got an article which lists examples of things that people have sworn by um, that were in fact not just ineffective, but dangerous. And of course, the list of things that people have sworn by that we now look upon as absurd, ridiculous, quaint, you know, stupid medical history, old timey medical weirdness. And that's a, even, that's an immense list. I mean, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of good examples of things that um, have been empires, you know, thousands, millions of people have passionately believed in that now everybody on earth is like, really, that's dumb. Uh, so testimonials are meaningless. <laughs> and the fact that chiropractors have satisfied customers means effectively nothing in terms of whether or not their methods are efficacious. Um, so uh, lots of controversies, testimonials and anecdotes don't really move the needle. And finally, the key piece is the thing that defines chiropractic, spinal manipulative therapy, uh, one of the classic old hands-on healing methods, uh, has been very thoroughly studied and does not significantly help people. There probably are isolated exceptions. There are for almost anything that you talk about. But on average, the vast majority of the time, most people are not significantly helped by wiggling their spines or treating so-called subluxations of the spine. Uh, so the core of chiropractic therapy uh, is not evidence-based, never was evidence-based, as it's been better studied over the last 20 years. Uh, it's just basically all bad news. It's either bad news, the studies are completely decisively negative, or a very common issue, they are damned with faint praise. Uh, technically positive, but really not that impressive. Uh, certainly not worth the costs and risks in some cases. Um, so that's the that's the basic issue with chiropractic. No doubt, there's pleasure I think in popping joints. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. When I when I have been to physio and the physio turns out to also be a chiropractor and they do that, you know, they curl you up in a ball and they snap every bone in your body. It does feel good, but. I mean, I, I'm always, uh, I'm always uh, very apprehensive about things like that. They claim to solve a problem in my toe because somebody moved my back, or a chronic illness is solved by adjusting my spine. So, apologies to all the chiropractors out there that are listening. Some of them are listening. Hi, chiropractors. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and I've been, a, I've been a bit of a thorn in the side of that profession with my writing for a long, long time. But I think it's, it's worth noting that, uh, that in uh, most of the writing that I do about this, most of what I've said about chiropractic on my website for 20 years now has been, you know, very um, just, just reporting on what the controversies are and not really issuing a ruling. I have certainly said very clearly what the science says about spinal manipulative therapy specifically. But, you know, as, as far as bashing the profession of chiropractic, my article is 100% focused on just saying, well, what are the controversies? What is it that experts and skeptics are concerned about? Not not issuing an opinion myself, just like, you know, well, here, are the, here are the things that have come up over the years. 
And then most importantly, Paul, you're always updating. You're always updating your... I mean, yeah. you've got too many articles now to, to update all of them. You'd, you'd never That's leave the house. That's true, but, yes. <laughs> yeah, but but the articles that are sort of the, 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 the flagstone or the cornerstone ones, like stretching and chiropractor, you're always updating them. Yeah. So nobody can say that this is stale now because... Because that's one of the things, that, and you also quote in your bibliographies, I guess you'd say, you, you quote every single journal, every single study. And that way you're you're very similar, in my opinion, to, to Alex Hutchison, is yeah. you're looking at the data, you're not giving um, a subjective opinion, you're being very objective about it and issuing it to the reader or their listener, and uh, then they can go and decide. But I mean, once you've read an article, the way that you put it together, it's pretty hard to to then ignore it. And, and I've, and for our listeners, I'd recommend that anytime you are um, uh, having questions about uh, sports injuries and that type of thing, chronic pain, just take a look at what Paul's put out. Some of it's really interesting. Um, Thank you. One other thing I want to talk about is this knees over toes movement that's been going on for about two years, maybe three years now. I even did it for a while thinking that it was going to be, I, I didn't have any injuries. I was just doing it to, to work my quads in different ways. What, what do you know about this, this uh, fad that was, was I, what my first thought was that it was sort of cute that you thought it's just the last couple, three years. Um, Cause it's an old idea, uh, but yeah. maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe is it is backwards dragging a sled. Okay, there's so not, something not, there's something more faddish here that I don't know about. Then tell me. Yeah, there's there's a guy in the in the states. He's called the knees over toes guy. He's been on Joe Rogan and things like that. He's you know because of that he's just exploding yeah. popularity. And what you do is yeah. you drag a weighted sled around or something weighted backwards, and meaning that as you're walking backwards, your knees are over your toes. And and, and they've made some miraculous claims. Our, you know, it's 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 he had a you know he couldn't even. He couldn't basically walk or something, and now he's, you know, he can dunk a basketball just because of doing knees over toes. But if you're not, if you haven't been exposed to it, right. there's another article for you. <laughs> yeah, and I have heard of this now that you mention it. I didn't realize you were referencing that. I haven't, I don't know it well, but I am aware of its existence, and it's mm-hmm. it's very clearly a member of an extended family of very similar things. Right. The this is a this is a really common theme. Um, that uh, if you if you do X in just the right way, it will have miraculous results. Uh, and of course, the red flag is miraculous results or the implication of it. Um, it, it. There's generally no such thing. You know, there 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 are no there are not really any amazing health or fitness hacks. They don't really exist. Um, so the the second you start picking up on that hack vibe. Uh, the you know if if it sounds like one weird trick, um, you probably uh, should just go to the gym and do something worthwhile, or go for a run, and stop watching social media. <laughs> and it seems yeah. so common now with with uh, I, I mean we're on a podcast now, but it's it seems so common now with podcasts is bro science that has <laughs> developed. Yeah. Um, and where these uh, there's certain health and fitness podcasters where when they put something out, that mm-hmm. becomes the new regime for everybody. But it, people have to realize that a lot of times there's a pitch at the end to buy something, mm-hmm. and that usually to me gets my spidey senses tingling and makes me think. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't get nearly enough people's spidey senses tingling. But 
often it doesn't even require that. Sometimes it's not even there. Uh, and the only reason, you know, that it's, uh, it, it's about reputation. It's about, uh, virality. Uh, it's, they don't have to sell something, uh, to be, uh, to be bothering, right. They can, they can benefit greatly just from something being super popular and making them seem cool and wise. That's more than enough often. Uh, and more and more, I think we're seeing that something that is visually striking uh, or easy to demonstrate, those things have, are getting a lot of traction right now because of social media, because of the nature of social media over the last five years, more and more we're seeing that the fads are based on things that are uh, easy to see easy to demonstrate, visually distinctive in some way. And that's not much of a basis. <laughs> for sure. It's a lot of good for stuff sure. out there that doesn't video well and plenty of right. nonsense that does video well. Yeah, we live but, in a clickbaity culture, right? So Extremely, yeah. More, yeah. more every year, and uh, and so we're seeing. Uh, do, do you know the one weird trick reference? Does that ring a bell? No. In in the early internet, there was an extremely successful ad campaign for weight loss based on um, the phrase "one weird trick." Just do this one weird trick to lose weight, and that was sort of it's almost the canonical clickbait. It's 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 a it's a phrase that almost represents all other clickbait, and and that that idea people love this in health, fitness, and rehab that something that's a little odd and a little surprising and kind of easy has a disproportionate benefit. The health hack, the one weird trick, and as you know, a student of this crap for so long, I've really developed very, very sensitive radar for the one weird trick vibe. And so when I, you know, when you started describing uh, the knees over toes guy, it's just like my brain immediately goes, one weird trick, one weird trick. That's, that's the one weird trick thing right there. Oh yeah. And it's, and the other, you know, the other way to say it is that's clickbait, right? That's uh, that's a, a great, great way, way to, to grab people's it. attention. Yeah. yeah. It's dragging the um, book right in front of their nose. I will presume to guide the conversation for a moment because uh, you asked earlier before the podcast about Chinook headaches and I did some reading about it and I learned something really interesting. You want to talk about Chinook Please headaches? Do. Please do yeah. since we live yes. in Calgary. Yeah. Although I imagine you've got listeners all the heck over the place. Yep. Yeah. I was going to so, say, let's take one minute just to explain what a Chinook is. Yeah. Yeah. Say what it her. is. Would you yeah. like to, to explain it since I'm a pilot? Yes, please. I was going to ask yeah. him to. Yeah. Let's hear about Chinook. I know the fields are awesome. Yeah. So uh, it's called a fawn wind in Europe and uh, a Chinook wind here. And in most um, areas of the world that live near mountainous terrain that have uh, an ocean on one side will get this. So for us, uh, Paul lives on the West Coast in Vancouver, so I guess it'll be his fault. But we get warm Pacific air that is pushed westerly against the Canadian Rockies, which is a, uh, they're not that high. We call them 3,000 meter peaks. But as the air rises, it, of course, condenses and uh, drops condensation, precipitation on Paul, and it drops snow into the mountains. And as the air uh, dries out and rises, so it's cooling at about, um, uh, the air cools at about 1.98 degrees per thousand feet. 
And then when it's uh, dried out, the lapse rate changes. And on the descent, as the air is being compressed, as it descends over the Rockies on the eastern slope, it's being compressed and therefore warmed up. So you've got this warm, moist air that is rising and cooling, dumping all its precipitation, and then racing over the mountains and descending down the eastern slopes. And as it compresses, it warms up. And then we get this this warm wind called a phone wind in Europe or Chinook wind here. And here it means a snow eater. And um, it cause we can go from minus 30 here to plus 15 in, in a period of 24 hours. Hmm. Um, and, so it's a hot, uh, dry wind. Yes, a warm, yeah. dry wind. Yep. Mm-hmm. So take it from there. And it and also creates get... the most beautiful and majestic arc to the yes. west over the mountains. Oh, yeah. So Schoenicard. you know when it's happening. Yeah. It's a bit, you can see it in the sky. You get an arc. Oh, really? yeah. oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huge arch for the entire horizon uh, huh. over the city. Huh. It's really cool. Yeah, neat, huh? And it makes people's heads hurt. It can't. Okay, so take it away. Yeah, uh, this is a great example of of you know how how to think about uh, anecdotes. So anecdotally, uh, we know that Chinooks and fawn winds cause headaches, but there's not much science about it. And this is very similar to uh, weather, especially barometric pressure changes causing flare-ups of arthritic pain or other pain. Uh, not much is known about how that works, but boy, people sure report it. And uh, it's just a good reminder that uh, you know, just because uh, I'm interested in the science and I'm a skeptic doesn't mean I'm not keen to hear what people have to say about their experiences. I'm also just generally a lot more interested in what people say um, that that it doesn't concern whether or not a treatment works, which is really a lot of bullshit gets mixed into that equation. Uh, but when you're just talking about how do people feel, um, I'm very interested in those anecdotes. So lots and lots of people for a long time have been saying these wins I get migraines, migraineurs, people who suffer from migraines, uh, report that the Chinook is a trigger, and uh, and this has been studied. I did a little bit of uh, did a little bit of research before uh, we got on the microphones here. I have a book about headache, so I'm interested in this. So it's something I've meant to look up many times over the years and just never got to it because there's a lot to get to. But I finally did this morning, and I was. Um, uh, so very quickly, a quick research summary here. Here's your informal uh, research uh, review. Um, yeah, it's real. <laughs> it's definitely a thing that happens. There are a couple studies, both about 20 years old and nothing really since then, uh, that pretty much confirmed it. That, yep, <clears throat> there's a higher rate of migraines among migraineurs uh, in the day before and during a Chinook. And in fact, they seem to be distinct, different mechanisms possibly for what causes the uh, <clears throat> the pre-Chinook headache versus the during-Chinook headache. But here's the cool part. I loved this. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, God, we got to talk about that. That is neat. <laughs> uh, so these things like this, will they will go unexplained for decades or forever. Uh, there's a lot of mystery still, especially in pain medicine. There's a lot we don't understand. Um, but uh, somebody found something really interesting, which is that there are significant nasopharyngeal anatomical differences between the people 
uh, who get Chinook headaches and those who don't. And uh, while this isn't confirmed and it would almost certainly need a bunch more research to confirm, that is a really great, plausible explanation for why Chinook headaches happen. It's this really weird, like, why, what the heck is this, you know, is there electromagnetism in the atmosphere? Like, who knows what's causing that? But it could be that simple. It could be that different shape of the nasal and pharyngeal uh, passages uh, results in different coping with changes in air pressure. And that could be a trigger. There's a, this connects to a really strong theme in pain medicine and rehab medicine, which is anatomical variation. There's just a mind-boggling amount of differences, visible and invisible, uh, between people, and they account for an amazing number of problems. And this is a great example. I will, uh, I keep a, I maintain a page that just lists anatomical variations and their possible consequences that people care about. Weird anatomical thing causes familiar problem. Um, and this is a, just a, what a great example that uh, maybe it's variation in the shape of people's nasopharynx uh, that results in some people getting the headaches and other people not. So cool. that explains the headaches, Paul. So what about people claim that their knees start to hurt or their hips start to hurt or their shoulder or their elbows? Do, does that happen too with the Chinook? That's what uh, some people claim. Now, is that yeah. because of gases that are trapped in your in your, or not maybe not trapped? We don't have the bends, I guess. But are there, are, hmm. is there is there a, uh, an impact on pressure? Um, I, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I don't know of, what the. Yeah, I, I, barometric pressure is is the thing that seems to correlate with our arthritic flare-ups. I assume. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to this as a as a pilot who knows stuff about atmosphere? I assume that there is significant barometric pressure changes associated with the Chinook? Yeah, but the thing is, is that when you get on an airplane and f and if you fly over the Rockies, you're you're sitting in Vancouver at uh, right around sea level. You're probably 10 or 15 feet above sea level where you're sitting. Yeah. I'm assuming. And then, but when you get in an airplane and you fly over to Calgary, you're sitting at 8,000 feet above sea level in the airplane. The airplane's at 35,000 or 41,000 feet, but the cabin pressure yeah. is 8,000. So in those yeah. cases with that type of pressure change, you would, unless it's because of the short duration, maybe, but you it could you, be, you, yeah, yeah, you'd anticipate yeah. that you'd have the, the maybe a shinokatic type thing or a, a, a joint issue if that is indeed true. But I do know that a, you know, people don't generally talk about headaches because of pressure changes in an airplane, they talk about ear problems, right? Yep. My ears won't clear mm -hmm. and that type of thing, yeah, which is a nice, straightforward, you know, hydraulics mm -hmm. equation. Uh, with the yeah. ear. I took a flight with an ear infection once. Very, very memorable experience. Uh, very memorable. Yeah, I've wondered the same thing about short-term versus long-term. Um, that, uh, yeah, it's it's a simple enough difference, but, but a slow, long-lasting change in barometric pressure might have a totally different effect. Kind of like, uh, you know, you could um, you could tolerate a, a neighbor playing their stereo too loud for 20 minutes, no problem. But at half the volume for seven hours, you might go mad. <laughs> and unless maybe it's a white album. Unless it's the white album, yeah. In which case, you're just happy. You just got good neighbors. What a great analogy. Yeah, that is a great analogy. Yeah. 
So it could be like, I mean, that's totally speculative. I have no idea, but I think there probably is a qualitative difference between, you know, relentless barometric pressure difference. Um, Yeah. Isn't it also, isn't it low pressure specifically that is associated with the arthritic complaints? Yeah. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. you've got high, the reason that the winds are coming out of the West, so they're higher pressure flowing into an area of lower pressure. So the pressure is going to be, we're lower here, but the pressure is going to be increasing um, high to low. So the, but once again, um, um, it's good to hear that it's real because whenever I've been told by people, they get uh, Chinook headaches. I've always kind of got, I don't know about that, but I guess it is a, a valid thing. Well, it's as a good chance. I mean, you know, all knowledge is provisional. We got a couple of studies from 20 years ago that say, yep, seems like it's real, but yeah, you, you probably need uh, three times as much research to really know and we'll probably never get it. So it looks like it's probably cromulent, but, uh, but yeah, more study needed as usual. So Pete, as we're wrapping up here, unless you have another question, I want to put him on the spot because I've, We've been going back and forth. Yeah, we've been going back and forth with possible questions. Um, Pete, do you have uh, any? No. And I guess I think Pete's moping because he stretched for an hour before this <laughs> podcast. He's still butthurt about the stretching. He's never getting over it. It's weird as Lulu Levens as we speak. Yeah. As soon as I read that article, I was like, we got to talk about this. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 Um, so if you could, if you could, I mean, do this one thing, Paul. If you could do this one thing. Oh, do you recommend... want a one weird trick? No. Yeah. Sorry. One weird <laughs> trick. If you could give us what three weird tricks, three, <laughs> three in, in your, in your, in your vast corpus of, of, of pain science <laughs> articles, what, what have you, what are the three things that you've learned that maybe you didn't know? Because I mean, this podcast could go on forever because we could talk about how you got into this because you were. In fact, a bit of a pseudoscience proponent back in the day, and you left the cult, right? And uh, I did, yeah. I used to be a yeah. huge flake. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, but don't be true, a flake is number one. True story. So I what, mean, I was a, what you... I was a massage therapist for a decade. I mean, I was a flake. I started, and I was made way oh, I more it. of a flake before that. I thought I was psychic. When I was young, I've come a long wow. way, baby. You're, you're complete. Yeah, you have come a long way, baby. <laughs> so what? Uh, I've had a bunch of time a, to turn around. Yeah, that's a whole different episode. <laughs> so what? Um, what are some of your? I don't know if you can take three nuggets that we can share with our. So what we're dealing with is we're, our 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 community is people that are interested in health and fitness, yeah. the outdoors, adventure. Um, you know, improving and self-improvement and, and that type of thing, sort of the, um, like the name of our podcast. Well, what yeah. are some of the, what are three, three, uh, do this one thing or do this weird thing or whatever you. You're looking for, uh, for health optimization tips, eh? Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. strength training, I think you're going to. There you go. Stretch. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, whatever you're, whatever stretching you're doing, knock it down to just what you need to do to feel nice and replace the rest of it with uh, resistance training. Uh, okay. And and if it suits you, if you hate gyms, uh, make it functional. Just do something fun that requires strength. And so, yeah, boring, boring. 
but really, yeah. really great basics. Uh, you can go wrong getting strong, but it's hard. Uh, it's strength training is super, super good stuff. Um, also, uh, don't worry about your posture. Um, that's a oh. plague on the uh, industry, the preoccupation with posture and alignment. Yeah. Don't worry about that either. Um, you can ditch that along with the stretching. In fact, posture is one of the reasons people, people try to stretch their way out of their, uh, out of their bad posture. Um, massage is your friend. It's not particularly medically potent. Uh, a lot of massage therapists will make many, many claims for the medical efficacy of massage um, that are overblown and not well supported. Uh, but massage of all of all the interventions of all the things that you can pay people uh, for help with, uh, it's uh, it's got more going for it, I think, than than anything else. And there are two reasons. And the first is that it's inherently pleasurable when it's done right. Um, don't tolerate unpleasant massage, by the way. Yeah. If you, uh, okay. yeah, it, it can be intense. Intense is fine. But if it is, if it doesn't have a satisfying quality, if it has a cringy, um, you know, if it's making you sweat, if it's, uh, um, if it's hard to endure, uh, nope, don't do that. That's not good. Okay. Um, so strong and intense, fine, as long as it's got a satisfying quality. But um, what what's great about massage is that it's got it's got this double threat of on the one hand it is inherently valuable, pleasurable experiences are inherently valuable, and primates are all animals very touchy, and primates particularly we love our touch. Touch therapy is baked right into massage therapy and has all kinds of benefits, including a couple that are actually proven. Like we know for a fact that it is in fact uh, uh, good for anxiety and depression. And that should not be underestimated because that's probably the tip of an iceberg of a whole bunch of other stuff. Anything that can actually reduce anxiety and depression, probably doing other stuff too. So it's got that on the one hand. Then on the other hand, and here's so I'm going to, I'm going to prove that I'm not always a skeptic. There's one thing that massage therapists do, which is dig at muscle knots, which may be helpful. It's very important to think of this as an experimental therapy, uh, because despite decades of mildly informative science about it, we still haven't actually been able to demonstrate what the hell muscle knots are, how they work, whether or not massage treats them. Um, however, as long as trigger point therapy is done in a way that isn't harmful or isn't too risky, um, it is a good, it's one of the good experimental therapies. I have no problem at all with the therapy being experimental, as long as it's not being done in spite of overwhelming negative evidence, like spinal manipulative therapy isn't just unproven, it's disproven. Whereas mm. trigger point therapy, although it has many problems and is overpromoted and overhyped by lots of people, digging it knots has a lot of potential for a lot of athletes. It's worth trying in many, many cases. And it's shocking how many seemingly serious injuries just kind of melt away when you dig at the right knot. And that's an anecdote. <laughs> that ain't science. Mm -hmm. But I've certainly experienced it and witnessed it many times. Uh, and there's enough persuasive science on the topic that even after 20 years of skepticism, I still think that that has some potential and is a very useful tool for, especially for athletes who are constantly hurting themselves. And, um, and also you've got the self-treatment option. 
uh, having a, a kit of uh, balls of different sizes and textures and various massage tools, I consider to be essential for any serious or aging athlete. Um, like a Theragun type of thing? Like one of those massage? Theragun's one of it, but I wouldn't, that's like, that'd be lower down on my list. Um, okay. uh, Theraguns are very hot right now, the, the massage guns, um, and and I've got them and I use them, but I don't think that they're particularly high priority. I don't think that the vibration brings all that much to the table, really. Um, and honestly, you're probably going to be able to do better work with a lacrosse ball for two bucks, mm-hmm. if that. Um, so that that's um, that's about as close as I get to offering a uh, a one weird trick is uh, buy yourself mm-hmm. a lacrosse ball and massage yourself with it. And whenever you feel like you just can't quite reach something well enough, go hire a massage therapist and, and then immediately fire them if they are too brutal. But if they aren't too brutal, <laughs> cling to them forever. A good massage therapist is uh, extremely valuable to an athlete. Um, yeah, that's yeah. I don't know if that was three, but there's some po- there's some positive stuff. That's awesome. Last, yeah, that was really good. And the last one I want to ask is, and, and I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse. What should a um, an everyday athlete be using, or anybody, for supplements, i.e. Wintertime in Canada, do you recommend vitamin D? Are you taking fish oils? Or is there anything in your repertoire that involves involves supplementation? That is in my wheelhouse. I've studied and written a lot about supplements over the years. And, and uh, I'm pals with uh, our fellow Canadian Saul Orwell, who's the founder of examine.com, which is now, I think, very clearly the best source of science-based information about supplements. Um, there are supplements that do, you know, certain things, but it's an amazingly short list um, of amazingly specific uh, benefits. Um, there basically is no such thing as a, a supplement that everybody should be taking. Uh, the closest, and it doesn't really apply to the casual athlete, but it's worth mentioning just as, a, as an example, uh, vitamin D, uh, while like everything else is overhyped and people without chronic pain uh, almost certainly do not need to routinely supplement vitamin D unless they know that they are deficient. Um, but chronic pain is different. Um, we know less about the relationship between D and chronic pain. There probably is one. Uh, supplementing is quite safe. D is a very safe vitamin. Uh, you can take quite a bit of it with no problem and it might help. So it counts as a good example of an experimental therapy. So let's say that you're a casual athlete with chronic pain, and there certainly are some of those. Uh, if you're, especially if you're a Canadian um, casual athlete with chronic pain, uh, then you're, there's a decent chance you're vitamin D deficient. Uh, D deficiency is amazingly common in the Northern latitudes. Uh, and is more likely to be problematic for um, uh, pain patients than other people. So that's the closest I come to saying, you know, a fairly large number of people should be taking X supplement. It would be D for people at northern latitudes or with a known deficiency, and you've got some chronic pain. And so, yeah, if you if you're always getting nagging injuries and they seem to take too long to recover, you always got aches and pains and it's making it harder and harder to keep being an athlete. Well, first of all, I feels you. I'm there, too. (laughs) And yeah, take some vitamin D. Uh, But 
basically nothing else. And particularly the most famous of the supplements like um, glucosamine for arthritic for joint health. Nope. Mm, nope. All the famous ones, pretty much garbage. So if you've heard totally, of yes. it, it's Snake probably oil. garbage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's <laughs> like a, that. there's there's a handful of exceptions, but I mean, I say it's funny. I don't think I've ever said that phrase. If you've heard of it, it's probably bullshit, but there's some truth in that. Like the, it is impossible to overstate how much this space is dominated by hype and fads. And so the, the things that reach you are almost by definition, the ones that have outcompeted other hyped things and are that's probably BS. It's it, it, the overwhelming majority of claims made about fitness and rehab are nonsense. The overwhelming majority, like I've like, I'll throw out ninety five percent. Wow. So if it's in the zeitgeist, be careful. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the way to put it. I've got one last uh, quote here that I read. It was uh, by a French. Uh, I think it was a, a doctor talking about pain and how they did a study on chronic pain sufferers when they tried to estimate a distance to walk. If you were in pain, you would overestimate the distance to, to walk. Yeah, that's And good. his quote yeah. was, individuals perceive the environment in terms of the cost of acting within it. And I just love that because <laughs> it, it goes all the way back to our psychosocial conversation. And the, this could be a chicken and egg thing as well, but it's important to realize that pain has these pain has this um, real overarching impact on our lives and it holds us back, right? Because mm -hmm. like his study said, uh, somebody's suffering chronic pain. And I've seen this with my own mother-in-law. She's, she's, she's 80 now and she's had some really bad back issues that I picked her up uh, recently to, to, to drive her home and it was a 200 meter walk, maybe a hundred meter walk to the vehicle. And she said, Oh, he parks so far away. But to me, it was, I couldn't yeah. believe I was probably about practically how, how curbside by your standards. Yes. <laughs> and then I'd note about this quote and I said to her, is your back bad today? And she goes, yeah, it's really bad. And and it was just yeah. a one, uh, you know, and an end of one study, but it, it really showed you that how important it is that we deal with pain properly. And I think Paul, that you have a really valuable role in um, educating all of us and especially those of us who are out there um, injuring ourselves a lot because of what we do. And, and you're there. I've had so much information or gathered so much valuable information over the years from you. So thanks for that. Thank and, you. um, it's just been a real honor to have you on the podcast. Hmm. Well, thanks. That's great to hear. It's, it's always weird and humbling and lovely to find out that I've had readers for many years now. This is, this has been awesome. People are going to love this episode, Paul. Thank you for doing this. Great. Glad to hear it. I'm, I'm delighted. Well, uh, if they like it enough, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, I, I, we, we are going to do it again because, like I said, you're always updating. And it's working out perfectly because somebody just came to the door. So if we hear some background <laughs> noise, that's what it is. But everybody, go to painscience.com. I've signed up for his newsletter, and it's well worth it. It is especially for you who are out there riding your bikes and running and, and doing the stuff that we all do on the, uh, in this adventure audio, um, community. Paul is just an invaluable, um, uh, educational, uh, website to go to. Plus his, uh, pain side dot, or sorry, he's at pain side on, um, 
on Twitter or X is an excellent place to go. So that's at P-A-I-N-S-C-I. So uh, it's got the Salamander logo. And same on Threads and, uh, now as well. Okay, on Threads, good. So mm-hmm. go check them out. Paul, thanks again. I can't thank you enough. Thanks. It's, uh, I, I love the fact that you agreed to come on and just be peppered with questions and, and dip into some controversies. And put on the spot over and over again. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite place to be. Thanks, guys. It was a fun day. Let's do it again yeah. sometime. Yeah, hope you can. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Paul. excellent, guys. Thanks again. All right. Thank you again to Paul for being so gracious with your time. We really, really appreciate it. Again, questions about the episode or questions for Paul, if we can have him back, hit us up at adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com. Everybody, thank you for listening. There's a lot of great podcasts out there. We really appreciate you taking a little bit of your valuable time to spend with ours, and we'll be back very soon.